Uh, my name is Rita Takoni. I'm the director of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities. It's nice to have you at this uh, third of five uh, Moments of Change Salon evenings. Um, hard to imagine that it's already March, and we still have many, many, many events coming up um, next week, well, this week, next week, and so on. Um, I just want to mention uh, three upcoming events. First of all, this Friday and Saturday, uh, there is a Moments of Change um, full production of Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro, uh, the wonderful opera by Mozart. It's going to be at the State Theater downtown at 8 p.m. Um, there are um, tickets still available. They can be purchased uh, the night of the performance at the State Theater. And uh, I hope some of you will be able to go. Uh, the performers are all uh, school of music students. And it's a lavish production with costumes and live music and uh, obviously live singing. Uh, so I think you will enjoy that. Um, I also wanted to mention that uh, the next salon, and there are flyers out there. If you did not pick one up, you may want to on the way out. Uh, we had to change the date of the fourth of five Moments of Change evening salons. So what we had originally in the Moments of Change brochure was April 7th. We have now rescheduled this event to um, March 29th, and all the information is on this flyer. The uh, uh, talk that evening will be given by uh, Jackie Reed Walsh, who is uh, on the faculty in uh, the School of Education and Women's Studies and also with the help of Sandra Steltz, who is the curator of uh, rare books and manuscripts in uh, the Penn State Libraries. Um, you'll be in this room on the 29th, which is a Monday from 7 to 8.30. And the reason that we had to move this event from its originally scheduled uh, April 7th is because on April 7th, we are bringing in Tony Morrison. Uh, and so we're very excited that Tony Morrison will be receiving the Institute for the Arts and Humanities Medal for Distinguished Contributions to the Arts and Humanities following Yo-Yo Ma, Isaac Perlman, um, Emmanuel Axe last year, following Sally Rushdie in 2006, and so on. So again, there's a flyer on Tony Morrison's uh, visit to Penn State, which is uh, outside of uh, the door. Feel free to pick one up on the way out. The event is free, but tickets are required. And you can uh, call ahead and reserve your ticket um, at Eisenhower. Uh, her talk will be at 8 p.m. on Wednesday, April 7th, in Eisenhower here on campus. So I hope you will all be there. Yes. Back to the tickets. Do students get first choice, and then we can, and they Everyone can so go in the get them day. at the same time. It will be available beginning March 29th. Thank you. Okay. So everyone can just rush and march tonight. Okay, uh, but tonight I'm very pleased to introduce the third of the five Moments of Change salons. Uh, the title of tonight's uh, presentation will be Cosmopolitanism in the Coffee House of the Coronel Hill in Rome. And the presentation will be given this evening by Martina Kolb and Robin Thomas. Uh, Martina Kolb is an assistant professor of German and uh, comparative lit here at Penn State. Uh, she is currently working on a book on um, German Expressionism, Italian landscape, and German Expressionism, uh, and uh, connections with uh, Nietzsche and Freud. And so she's uh, working on uh, this book, I know very, very much so, this, this year. Uh, and uh, Robin 
uh, Thomas is an assistant professor in art history here at Penn State. And uh, he just received a very prestigious fellowship for next year from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. He'll be in residence there in New York City all of next uh, academic year. And he will be working on his book, which is on uh, the theater of state, uh, Naples and Madrid, perhaps royal palaces. royal palaces in general. So two excellent scholars who are going to be speaking to us this evening on uh, subjects that they obviously know much about. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome you and thank you and thank all of you for being here this evening. Thank you. is going to be largely sort of setting the stage of what Rome was like in the 18th century. At least that'll be the first part of what I talk about. Uh, then uh, to sort of map you where I'm going, I'll discuss the popes and how they maintain their relevance uh, in Europe despite a sort of declining political fortune that they had. And it'll be all about the use of art in maintaining that uh, role of uh, sort of preeminent importance still for Europe at the time. So the view from the coffee house and the Quirinal, uh, I'll explain why, why the coffee house during the course of things. A man who has not been in Italy is always conscious of an inferiority from his not having seen what it is expected a man should see. Well, that's Samuel Johnson, and he knew it because he never made it to Italy, uh, we know. But many did, and Rome burned brightest in their imaginations, beckoning with her artistic treasures. They delighted in her many squares, stood in awe of her ancient monuments, and bought art to fill their palaces back home. Most purchased souvenir images that could recall the sunny climes of Italy. These paintings present Rome more or less as, as we know it today. Uh, this is Gaspar van Fiddel's view of the uh, Quirinal Hill. And here we have the uh, papal, papal summer, summer residence over here. Uh, the two statues, the horse tamers, and off in the distance you can see St. Peter's over there in kind of the sunny haze. What else could travelers have seen? Well, I thought we'd take, just kind of starting out, uh, a little bit of a tour of the city. Uh, certainly, uh, the Quirinal Palace will return to is one, one major feature that's relatively recent uh, in, in its improvements. Uh, but let's, let's walk around and see what was the most recent. What was Rome that they were seeing in about 1776? Um, we would probably arrive overland and come through the northern portal of the, uh, the city, the Porta del Popolo. From there, we could pass down the Via Babuino and come upon De Sancti's great flight of steps from the piazza in front of the Spanish embassy up to the Trinita dei Monti, the Spanish steps. Um, they were financed by Louis XV, but in one of the best appropriations of someone else's money, uh, became known as the Spanish steps because the Spanish embassy was nearby. So they're really French steps. Uh, <laughs> If we continue past them, we would come upon a new fountain at the mouth of an old aqueduct called the Trevi. So sort of winding our way through the city here, the heart of the city. By the way, there's the Tiber, just to situate. There's the Tiber, Colosseum over here, Vatican here. 
So we weave our way through the city and uh, come upon this Trevi fountain. Well, uh, this dramatic piece of urban stagecraft was completed in 1762 on plans by Nicholas Salvi and probably looked about as bright and white as it does after a recent cleaning. Um, what Salvi did was knit together two separate buildings. What we see, it looks like one uniform facade, unified facade, but it's really two palaces with a water channel running between them that he's made to look like one palace, sort of spurting water through this rocky base. From there, and particularly if we were religious pilgrims, we would want to make haste to the most important basilicas of the city. Of these, St. John Lateran had a new facade by Alessandro Galilei. And the Lateran, that'd be, that'd be a, a good hike over here, right? Uh, a, a large part of one day to get over to the Lateran. Um, and there's that facade by Galilei. It's regarded really as one of the most purely neoclassical structures in Rome. But it proved Galilei's sole triumph there. He was kind of a one-hit wonder in Rome, but uh, his career instead led him to Great Britain. And if you want to see Galilei's greatest palace, you have to go to Castletown Manor in Ireland, of all places. So he finishes up uh, elsewhere. Uh, taking the straight street from the ladder, and there's a straight street right through here to another major basilica, we would come to Santa Maria Maggiore, which, like the ladder, had a new facade. Um, the architect, who was Ferdinando Fuga, was remarkably sensitive to the medieval mosaics on the old facade. Uh, he sheltered them within a new loggia and illuminated them with hidden light wells, making his addition into a reliquary for the old structure. And I show you a night image because it's well illuminated at night. You can see the mosaics back behind there uh, being sort of sheltered by the new facade. Having had enough of churches, we might want to take in a palace or two. Uh, we could go to the Via del Corso, the main street cutting through the heart of Rome, and look there at the ornate Palazzo Doria Pamphili, uh, with its wonderful uh, late Baroque window frames sort of jutting up there. If grandly classical was instead our taste, Worry not, the massive Palazzo Braschi couldn't be missed on the edge of Piazza Navona. There's Piazza Navona, the old uh, Roman stadium that has uh, the famous Four Rivers Fountain by Bernini in the middle. Uh, at one end of it grows uh, this huge Palazzo Braschi. And it has a wonderful neoclassical staircase of stucco patterns and polished marble by Cosimo Morelli, one of the finest, fine, most finely crafted buildings in all of Rome. But the area that was most remade around 1776 was the Quirinal Hill, uh, back where we started. Near the palace, right here, the popes planned a huge stable, which would be sort of slightly off our canvas over here. That was very elegant. They also planned, with our backs are to it, and from where this few paintings made, uh, another palace to house a bunch of administrative offices. And then in 1781, an obelisk was set up here between the, the horse tamers, kind of a visual marker for the papal palace. Uh, there it is there, 1786. The popes so liked this scheme of obelisk and fountain there, they had a wonderful inkstand made of it. That's an inkstand, hard to believe, but uh, it's in Minneapolis. This is a gratuitous showing of a slide. I like the image. It doesn't add anything to the talk, but I uh, thought you'd enjoy it too. 
What visitors thought of all this new Rome can be read in the numerous travel diaries published in the 18th century from Joseph Addison to Charles de Gros to, most importantly for tonight, Goethe. But I want to offer a counterpoint to these views by adopting the perspective from within Rome. For as much as these tourists were shaped by their visits, the city was equally reshaped by their presence. It became a cosmopolitan capital. With friends and enemies, Protestants and Catholics, rubbing shoulders in its streets, museums, studios, and coffee houses. My part of the evening will therefore offer some taste of what Rome was like and how the popes fostered and spurred international tourism and a cosmopolitan artistic community in order to advance their political standing. Where better to get this view of Rome than from the papal residence we've been looking at, the Quirinal uh, Palace. Um, fortuitously, also, the Pope's had a coffee house constructed there, which is very good for our idea of the salon, so we'll, we'll go to the coffee house momentarily. The Quirinal Palace is now the uh, residence of the kings of Italy, but it should really be called the Quirinal Villa. It's not so much a palace as a villa. In fact, the long wings on this side and here are relatively shallow, and they shelter a vast garden inside. It's only open the 2nd of June, which is the Festival de Republica. So you have to line up early on 2nd of June, and you can get in to see the garden still now. Um, uh, the gardens uh, are full of trees and high hedges, sculptures, fountains, and even a very large hidden grotto. At their edge, facing over the sea, Pope Benedict XIV commissioned the architect Ferdinando Fuga to design a retreat from his retreat. A small four-room house where he could delight in letters and learn in conversations, as well as sip those caffeinated elixirs of coffee and chocolate. It was a modest building with rusticated pilasters framing three central arches, uh, two projecting ends with pedimented windows on them. Very, very simple, but richly filled with books, furniture, and fine paintings. We know how it was used in part because Giovanni Paolo Panini would make it the coffee house the backdrop for a painting. I'm going to show you the painting here. It depicts Charles Bourbon, King of the Two Sicilies, popping by for a visit in 1744. There's Charles right there. He was the first reigning monarch to visit the Holy City since Charles V in 1519. And he had caught the Pope unready. Uh, he actually just won a battle very nearby, so it's kind of really a surprise to me. But, um, so the pontiff welcomed the king for an hour's chat at the coffee house. Panini's painting clearly shows the king as protagonist. He's centrally framed by the nice arch stairs, offset, and he's the subject of everyone's attentions here. Where is the pope? I see the pope. Pope is, what is it, stage right? Is that what you say back over here? He, he's over here through a doorway. We catch a glimpse of him over there. He's clearly secondary in the composition. Not surprising that the person who paid for the painting is him. Um, and this arrangement illustrates the first point that I want to stress, and that's the politically circumscribed role that the Pope was playing on the stage of European politics. The decline of papal power had become a, begun a century, perhaps even two, before Charles's visit. The popes ruled over a territorial realm that belted the middle of the peninsula, but by the time of Charles's visit, their territory was guaranteed by powerful neighbors. He's one of them. The popes of the late 18th century therefore struggled to create a strong profile against this backdrop of fading power. 
you might think, well, they could exercise a strong hand in religious matters, but this too was thwarted. For example, in 1773, the Pope was ordered by Spain, France, Portugal, and the two Sicilies to suppress the Jesuit order. Against his will, really. The erosion of papal authority is contrasted by one fact, and that is more reigning monarchs visited Rome in the second half of the 18th century than ever before. Kings did not come for personal or spiritual guidance, and if we look at this portrait of Joseph II, the Holy Roman Emperor, and his brother Leopold, Grand Duke of Tuscany, we see two Catholic rulers announcing their independence. Well, how? Pompeo Batoni painted the portrait in 1679, and that's, that's important. Because what had happened? Well, Pope Clement XIII had died. Rome was in an interregnum. There was no pope they had to go pay fealty to. So no politically impalpable gestures like kissing the pope's ring. They were there kind of uh, free to do what they wanted. Um, fittingly, the emperor, the most important, he occupies the center. He's somewhat less engaged than Leopold, who looks directly out at us. Um, he kind of casually and confidently drapes his arm over this statue of Roma. Uh, his head is set against a window is framed uh, by St. Peter's in the Castel Sant'Angelo. But the portrait warns us, don't assume St. Peter's has some role in Joseph's politics. The emperor's left index finger points gently down at the table where there's a book. And what's the book? Well, it's Montesquieu's Spirit of the Laws. It's a book that was banned in Rome. So any cardinal or prelate who scrutinized the painting for visual signs of a, of a closer alliance, and there were a lot of them, so many, but Tony had to close the studio because he couldn't finish, because everybody was coming by to see it. Um, they would have been really disappointed to see, well, there's Montesquieu's Spirit of the Laws. He's not going to reconcile with, with the Pope in some meaningful way. So with papal authority slipping away, how did they remain relevant? How did they draw these people to Rome? Well, they did so by embracing art. And this was nothing new, of course. When the pope had wanted to draw pilgrims to the city as early as 1450, he coupled papal bulls with a building boom that aimed to make Rome the most modern city in Europe. For Renaissance popes, culture also fulfilled pious aims. It was for the greater glory of God. Late 18th century popes said the same and felt the same, but they also viewed art as one of the principal realms of their power. The draw of Rome would remain their strength, and whether Protestant or Catholic, bringing crown princes to their city helped confirm their political place. Uh, let's look at this painting, um, which shows Pius VI leading, leading Gustav III of Sweden through the newly built galleries of the Vatican Museums. Now, there's one big complication in hosting the king of Sweden, if you're the pope. Anybody know what it is? Sweden's Lutheran, right? So this is a Lutheran monarch here, isn't he? So how did they meet? Well, it was decided that Gustav would stroll through the museums and the pope would accidentally meet him there, right? They would bump into each other, quite literally. But this canvas doesn't show an accidental meeting. It shows a guided tour, right? The pope is showing off all his antiquities to a wide-eyed Gustav. If you're close, you can see Gustav's really you know, quite, quite surprised by that. So he's very impressed by his host treasures. Now, Gustav, by the way, would be very sad if he was killed in mass fall assassinated. Right? So, buried in some hollow and massacred space. 
So Pius here is showing us also one aspect of Rome's appeal, and that's its antiquities. Samuel Johnson implied it. Seeing the ancient ruins was a staple of the learned. By the 18th century, the papacy had begun to take a very active role in the promotion of these treasures. Previously, if one had wanted to see great Roman sculptures, one went to the Vatican, but also to private palaces. And as long as the works remained in Rome, the papacy was unconcerned about owning them. But in the 18th century, a troubling trend began. Financially distressed Roman families began to sell off their collections, often to foreign buyers. This, the papacy vowed to stop. Popes began to purchase private collections and enacted laws to ban the export of, of significant cultural monuments. And these forebears of our sort of modern cultural patrimony laws uh, did have teeth, we know, because Goethe is offered a statue of a dancer for sale, and he turns down the seller because he doesn't think he can get an export permit. Uh, he was right. The dancer is in the Vatican now, so uh, ruins were therefore riches, and popes determined to give them a proper place for display. In 1734, Clement XII opened the Capuline Museum for display of ancient art. It was Europe's first public museum, and subsequent popes added to it, opening an Egyptian museum there and a painting gallery. At the Vatican, collections expanded as well. This pope, Pius VI, would set in motion a vast reworking of the collection inside a lavish new building here that I'm going to talk about. This new museum, still known as the Pio Clementino, Pius Clement, and here's St. Peter's down here. Uh, we think of the Vatican museums as all of this, right? All the way down to Sistine Chapel. You have to walk the long corridors of Belvedere to get down there. Um, but really, the museum part in the 18th century would have been regarded just as the part up there. Right? Not, not all of this. This was Sistine Chapel. It's something different, not, not museum. Uh, and so we were zooming in here, and for some reason Google Earth got a little blurry at this point. Um, but I've circled in this area, which is the Pio Clementine, the, the new part of the museum. The museum is a series of five different shaped rooms joined in a chain. A rotunda for monumental sculpture leads to uh, a room, a smaller room for Apollo and the Muses. Uh, then one goes into a room for uh, animal sculptures right here, and then finally into the octagon at the middle. It's all preceded by sort of vestibule out here. So there's kind of our chain of different shaped rooms. Uh, we'll walk through a couple of them. Here is the rotunda that we're walking through, still there. Uh, so that room. And now we'll jump over and go just directly to the octagonal court, because this is this is sort of the climax of one's journey, because in this octagonal courtyard were the most famous works of the collection, uh, framed within arches here uh, for us, uh, were things such as the Lachlan, the Hall of Belvedere. Um, and, and we have to think, contemporaries must have regarded seeing these like we do, walking into the Louvre and around the corner to see the Mona Lisa, something that's been reproduced in prints and plaster casts for them all their lives, and here they're seeing the real thing, they're the original, right? They're uh, the culmination of a path that's been heightened by the museum's design. So Rome was fast, fast becoming the museum city that we know, but it was not nearly that. The culture of collecting was balanced by an equally important focus on the present. 
Amassing sculpture and painting was not only for display, but also for study. Scholars like Johann Wilhelm Hinkelmann and Edward Gibbon used Rome's vast collections to compile or inspire their ambitious works of history, Hinkelmann and art history. Meanwhile, budding artists from France, Germany, and England swarmed over the museums to study the works of the past. And they all kind of shared the same training, these young artists, to draw, and specifically to copy, the esteemed works of ancients and moderns. Hubert Robert shows us here uh, a scene from the capital line, and we see an artist down here on the ground looking up, drawing the sculpture. So think of them as great drawing students. Strolling through the capital line or Vatican museums, we would more likely come upon artists clutching paper and chalk, staring intently while they worked. They were encouraged by popes and princes who offered supplemental training in academies and schools. The Roman pontiffs had the Academia of San Luca, the Academy of St. Luke, uh, which was set up in the 16th century. In 1666, it was joined by the very important French Academy, founded by Louis XIV, that offered winners of its famous Rome Prize, Plea de Rome, the opportunity to study in the Eternal City. And there are many famous recipients of the Plea de Rome who studied in the 18th century. In addition to official channels, there are also numerous private schools, especially for drawing nude figures, uh, which the popes at first don't really open any sanction later. Well, these many academies and created a contemporary art scene as flush and vibrant as any in Europe. And for the remainder of my talk, I'm going to dwell on five artists that help keep Rome relevant and great. One is the architect and engraver, Giovanni Battista Piranesi. Uh, three are painters, Pompeo Battoni, an Italian, Jacques-Louis David, Frenchman, and Angelica Kaufman, a Swiss born artist. And finally, the sculptor Antonio Canova. So, the five personalities sort of give us a, uh, an idea of what the city was like artistically. The eldest of the group was Piranesi. He was born in Venice, where he trained as an engineer and architect. And though tutored in building, Piranesi built his reputation in print. When he came to Rome, he quickly learned how to engrave and made a fast name for himself at it. No artist attacked the plate with such expressive line, and none so romantically conveyed the grandeur of ancient Roman buildings. With his etching needle, Piranesi made Rome sublime. Broken temples tower over tiny observers down here. Plants sprout wildly from crevices in stone. Shadows cast these cavernous darknesses, and all buildings seem drawn from the impossibly low perspective of an ant. It's as if your head is on the ground to look up and get that point of view. He's as good a businessman as he is an engraver, and his prints found a ready market in all of these tourists who are cycling through the city. They took his prints back home and showed them to others and whetted the appetites of future travelers. And it's perhaps not just surprising that there are lots of stories of travelers who came to Rome and after seeing Piranesi, somewhat disappointed by the actual Romans. These were more awesome on paper than they were in person. As successful as he was as a printer, Piranesi was not respected as an architect. Part of the problem was his querulous and suspicious nature. Like the ruins he depicted, his biography is marked by a series of ruined friendships. Clients found him difficult too, and he got very few commissions because of it. One of the only things he built is a church for the Knights of Malta on the Aventine. 
looking at it, we can see how Piranesi is clearly sort of a lover of ancient fragments, because ruins have, in a way, invaded the building. Um, just two details. The, the pilasters here have these sword motifs, are topped by sphinxes, and uh, instead of a typical entablature, it goes straight to a Greek key pattern. Uh, above the door, what looks like a stridulated sarcophagus is broken by a big round window here. And then the door frame, you see how it just sort of ends as if it broke off there here at the top? So it's fragments transported up on the sun. His license with ancient art made him remarkable. He would engrave reconstructions of ancient Rome that owe less to archaeology than his brimming imagination. The actual Via Appia, as Goethe eloquently describes it, is, is a really sort of a pastoral place with the country road dotted with the occasional ruin of a tomb. Well, what's Piranesi's Via Appia like? Reconstructed? Oh, it's a veritable canyon of classical skyscrapers here with every imaginable stele and bust and, and urn stacked up there. Uh, all these ancient fragments there together. And he didn't stop there. I think really his greatest act of reconstruction, re visual reconstructive uh, reconstruction of the past was his map of the ancient area of Rome known as the Campus Martius. Um, Campus Martius, there are few identifiable monuments, but they're really dwarfed here. We have the, what's now Piazza Navona there, that stadium right there, the Pantheon here. But as you can see, they're engulfed within these huge complexes, um, circuses, fan-like corridors, meridians and pools for naval battles remake the area into an improbably elaborate cityscape. Now, Piranesi knew he was fudging things. He admitted it. Um, but he said, look to the ancients themselves. They broke their own rules. Everything was relative to the time and people that made it, he sort of Piranesi therefore changed art by using antiquity to fire his intensely personal vision of the distant past. Rome became his laboratory of experimentation, and it would take early Hollywood film sets of Griffith and DeMille to rival Piranesi's visually imagined antiquity. Now, Piranesi was not the most famous Italian artist in the city. Uh, that honor fell to the Prince of Painters, Pompeo Bettoni, who we've already seen in this portrait here. Bettoni is born in Lucca in 1708, and he comes to Rome at age 19 to study and draw after the ancients, honors. Even as a student, his drawings are absolutely remarkable. And I'll show you one here. And we can imagine the eager flash in a collector's eye when they looked over young Batoni's shoulder as he sketched. Not surprisingly, these things are snapped up by traveling lords. And they send him on a breathtaking path to success by commissioning a slew of portraits from him. That's where he'll really make his name. Batoni did not invent the Grand Tour portrait, but he revolutionized its appeal. Kind of like Apple with the MP3 device, right? So the iPod is what we know. They didn't invent it, but you know, they made it very fashionable. So he takes a dry souvenir genre and breathes life into it, into his sitters particularly, making them vivid and memorable. His superior draftsmanship, fresh use of color, refined and really near-perfect handling of paint, and above all, his ability to capture the likeness of a sitter made him one of the greatest portraitists in the whole history of art. To the British in particular, Batoni was the best portrait painter in the world. 
And in one wonderful anecdote, a British lord sits down to dinner, and the man next to him turns to him and immediately recognizes him and says, you're so-and-so. And of course, the lord kind of alerts, says, well, how do you know? And the man explains, well, I saw your portrait by Mr. Batoni down in the customs house. So I knew exactly who you were. Um, so uh, this great likeness that he's able to capture. His portraits were in demand at the courts of Berlin, Warsaw, Naples, Mannheim, Stuttgart, Bayreuth. And they were in such high demand that it meant Batoni's blue chip pictures could not be gotten with money alone. He could afford to refuse commissions, and Lord showed up with letters of introduction and lobbied multiple days in a row to get Batoni to paint them. Batoni's portraits, you see, made the man, and here's a good example, Senator Abondino Rizzonico, whose only qualifications for being a senator was uh, being the Pope's nephew. He's 24 years old. He really had no experience before that. But Batoni gives him all the requisite authority here, visually. He said against the Capitoline Hill, the Campidoglio back here, there's a statue of Roma. Roma over here, it's kind of hard to see. Um, Rizzonico is clad in the brilliant crimson and gold of a senator. Sword of his authority leans against the table. Down here, Aputo holds the scales of justice, one of his responsible, one of his charges as senator of Rome. In terms of its pure visual luxury, this is pretty hard to surpass. Um, but let's do it anyway. Um, <laughs> here strides a jarring contrast. Colonel William Gordon, who's a proud Scot, as if you couldn't gather that, wanted uh, a likeness that would command its viewers. Gordon swaggers with martial self-possession. His sword is drawn over here. He steps on the base of this statue of Roma, but seems to look past her, oblivious to her and the fact that the Colosseum is right over his right shoulder. So this completely fictive, yet somehow convincing mise en allows Gordon to appear to have one foot in the classical past and another in the national present. We know that Gordon selected the tartan. In fact, art historians have identified the exact tartan that that is. It's appropriate to his family. And Batoni seems to have relished the challenge of it. And it kind of as if binding together this, this scarlet uh, uh, jacket, gold waistcoat, and, and the kilt is not enough in itself. He gave the kilt a toga-like twist, kind of adding a classical illusion there to it. Uh, and it, it's just awesome virtuoso skill on display here the whole way through. Uh, so drew such notice that James Boswell goes by to see it when he's in Rome, uh, fitting for a Scot to go look at other Scots, see what the neighbors are doing. <laughs> Only one other artist could rival Batoni for fame, and that was the sculptor Antonio Canova. Canova was much younger. He had only gotten to Rome in 1779, but his rise was meteoric. In 1787, within the church of Santi Apostoli, he unveiled this tomb of Clement XIV. In form, it was no different from the pyramidal scheme of all earlier generations of papal tombs, or most all, particularly the Baroque ones. But whereas those tombs are dramatic crescendos of movement toward the top, the figure of Pope, Canova's tomb rises with solemn restraint. A weeping figure of humility leans on the sarcophagus, while temperance sits uh, in repose on the other side. The figure of the Pope is also interesting because he's not offering benediction, as is typical, but his gesture is almost sacramental. It's, it's almost baptismal, actually. Everybody in Rome flocked to see this, and critics saw in it the budding sort of roots that would spark neoclassicism in sculpture. 
It's therefore a papal tomb that paves the way for a new interest in sort of classical taste. Following on the heels of this triumph, Canova produced one remarkable mythological group after another. I'll show you one, Cupid and Psyche here. Paradoxically, they sort of cling to each other with the most relaxed and beautifully restrained embraces, seeming to melt together like Olympic ice dancers, concealing the extreme strength and effort it must be to hold up in that, that sort of position. Um, Things like this, once they were produced, uh, Canova was hailed as the new Phidias, the great sculptor of Athens, uh, likened to him. And he too was uh, met with so many commissions that uh, it took a long time to get uh, Canova sculptures a few commissions, sometimes a year or more. As a man, Canova is no revolutionary. He was conservative, devoutly Catholic, and hotly anti-French. He would sculpt Napoleon and members of his family, and reluctantly moved to France for a period, but he refused all court appointments offered by Bonaparte. The connection to Napoleon did produce this very famous, one of his most famous works, the recumbent sculpture of Napoleon's sister Pauline, with her exquisite softness and uh, elegantly artificial pose. Pauline does seem to be Venus reincarnated, alluring and aloof in kind of her Olympian remove uh, here. The work was displayed in a room by itself and had its own special lighting and a base that revolved, so it was a revolution really in art and display. Um, but even while sculpting for Europe's most famous family, the Bonapartes, uh, Canova longed for his studio in Rome, and it's still there. Uh, actually, it's a uh, cafe and restaurant now, full of plaster casts of Canova's works, a great place to feel a part of 18th century Rome or grab an espresso. Canova helped launch neoclassicism in stone, but in paint, the credit goes to Jacques-Louis David. David came to Rome as a pensioner at the French Academy in 1775. Dutifully, he began to draw after ancient sculpture, but felt that antiquities had little to teach him. Instead, he found more inspiration in painters of earlier generations, people like his compatriot, Nicolas Poussin, and his classicism, the dramatically lit canvases of Caravaggio, and the Baroque beauty of Guido Reni. With these models in mind, the young Frenchman began to formulate a style that married the real and ideal. He returned to Paris and created a stir with works like this one, Belisarius Receiving Alms, um, the story is Belisarius is the famous general Justinian who supposedly was blinded and forced to beg for alms at the gates of Rome uh, at the end of his career. Um, and here we see David's sort of blending of things. Um, the figures are presented almost in sort of a sculptural relief, but there's a sort of great realism, Caravagesque realism in things like the face of Belisarius, uh, whereas the gestures are almost statuesque. Very classical bits the beats gathering things together. Um, students were drawn to David, and he probably had about 40 in his studio when he decided he would leave it all, travel back to Rome to make one exceptionally important picture. Taking up the story from Livy of the Horatii, those three brothers who were to defend Rome in battle. David determined to make their vow to defend the Republic into his own manifesto of art. Here on canvas, the stoic meaning of the oath is perfectly matched to the stylistic gravity of David's depiction. The three sons step forward in unison and raise their arms in common resolve. 
the father clutches the blades and gestures heavenward, perhaps for some sort of divine sanction. And behind, uh, sisters and wives of the warriors melt over here in sorrow. sorrow. And all this is set within a space uh, restrained and archaeologically exact, right down to a herringbone brick pattern down here that you would have seen all over Rome, uh, that uh, really uh, frames the, the stoic gestures of the Holy Shot themselves. Now, according to local newspapers, we know we have the newsprint upon it, about this painting's reception. Uh, it was rapturous when it was unveiled. People packed David's studio, a celebrated Roman poet composed a Latin epigram for it, and even the Pope asked for a private viewing. So when David returned to Paris, buzz about the oath of the Horatii preceded him. Everyone there knew it had been a smashing success in Rome, and of course we know it as one of the iconic turning point paintings in, in our history, if we can say that. Now, David is not alone among, the neo, among those promoting neoclassicism. Gavin Hamilton, a Scotsman, Anton Raphael Mons, a German, were both influential in the movement. Uh, another German uh, that uh, Martina will talk about in a little bit was uh, Wilhelm, Wilhelm Tischwein, who would spend many years there, and, and some in close uh, company with his friend Goethe, who he paints his portrait even painted. These are just a few of the handful of non-Italians that thrived in Rome later in the century. But I would like to focus particularly on Angelica Kaufman. Uh, show me her self-portrait. Kaufman was born in Switzerland into a family of painters. She accompanied her father on his trip to Italy in the 1750s and was immediately recognized as a prodigy. Think a good analogy is Leopold, you know, dragging the young Wolfgang around, right? And, and you know, having him perform. By the way, they come through Rome in the 1770s on their tour, so they're around too. Um, Kaufman's precocious skill earned her commissions by the age of 15, so very, very young. But she faced numerous hurdles. As a woman, she was not allowed to draw new figures from life. Instead, she turned to sculpture, allowing ancient Roman physiques to stand in for real ones. She also had to depend on men for many financial tra transactions, which would allow husbands to dominate her life. In fact, she marries her first husband, a completely fraudulent Swedish nobleman. Um, second one is an Italian. Despite all of this, Kaufman achieved fame and befriended some of the most influential people in Rome. She painted the portrait of the famous art historian Winkelmann, among many others. She also delved into history painting, which is important because history painting is the most important genre of the arts, according to an Albertian model, Renaissance model of the sort of hierarchy of painting. And it was one that was really mostly off limits to women, as female artists in the 18th century portraitists. Her skill uh, in that earned her an invitation to England, where she was a wild success. She spoke English very well. But she missed Rome. She said, it's always on my mind. Uh, is that a uh, well, country music song comes to mind? But, and she longed to return there. Finally, in 1781, she comes back with her Italian husband. And it opens the way for some of her greatest works. Uh, things like Virgil reading the Aeneid to the family of Augustus. It's really kind of an ennobled family drama, maybe sort of classically infused uh, intimate drama. It's bold and scale, well, rich, and, and all the color here that she used. And it effectively conveys the moment when Octavia faints upon hearing Octavia, uh, Augustus's sister, faints when she hears Virgil recite lines of fulsome praise for her recently deceased son. Herself childless, Angelica had a maternal instinct, according to those who knew her, and she was 
seems to have a certain sensitivity to rendering things like the swooning of this grieving mother. Kaufman was equally adept at showing the families of living rulers. Her portrayal of the royal family of Naples conveys a certain formality, but also uh, without its, not without its touches of intimacy over here. Um, it also makes the royal family look charming and tranquil, something we know they completely weren't. Uh, the king was terribly uncouth, the queen was willful and quite difficult. Um, but, uh, you know, in paint, everybody looks so, so lovely. Um, after, um, Kaufman's fame was so widespread that after Batoni's studio, hers was actually the most crowded with visitors in Rome. Goethe came to her studio. And at her death, she was accorded exceptional uh, funeral rites in Rome. Fifty <coughs> Capuchin friars led the way as the procession wound its way down the Pension Hill to Santa Andrea del Frate. The entire artistic community of the city followed her beard. Two of her paintings were carried in the procession, as well as a marble model of her hand that had been sculpted, sculpted by Canova. The honor of carrying paintings in a funeral cortege had only been bestowed once before in Rome, famously, and that was to Raphael. And so for this Raphael among women, the tradition gets revived, for Angelica had broken through the gender barrier in the history of art by being as renowned as her male peers. With the passing of Batoni, Canova, Kaufman, Rome began to lose its luster, and none knew this as well as the popes. By the 1790s, their court was failing to attract the artists that helped make Rome Catholic Mundi. The future of the papacy also seemed very fragile. The French Revolution irreparably damaged the role of the church in France. And in the 1790s, Napoleon crossed the Alps. As his army moved through the Po River Valley, Bonaparte reshaped Italy. He ended oligarchic, the oligarchic government of Venice and passed it to Austria in exchange for getting, getting Milan for France. And then he invaded the Papal States in 1796, and he hungered not so much for the power there as for the art. Rome's churches and museums were stripped of their most famous works, and they were shipped to Paris. In 1798, the Pope was deported too. Um, Rome was declared a republic, and the city was garrisoned by French troops. Pope Pius VI, the one we saw giving the guided tour of the museum, who had done so much to solidify the cultural power of the papacy, died a virtual prisoner. His successor was elected in Venice and crowned with a paper mache tiara, because Napoleon had taken the tiara too. He took the name Pius XII to honor his predecessor and would be able to make it back to Rome even as Italy was rocked by revolutions and realignments. But in 1804, Napoleon returned, this time fighting not for France, but for himself, right? His own, his own power. In Milan Cathedral, he crowned himself king of Italy, and then he invites Pius VII to travel to France for his imperial coronation. Well, we know what happens, right? Uh, he chose us. Uh, the Pope is upstaged by Napoleon, who crowns himself and his consort there. Uh, Pius is sidelined. We see him sitting over here, kind of uh, sitting forward in his seat, even as, as all the real action happens here. So. Uh, sidelined in the ceremony, Pius would battle with Napoleon throughout his life. He would excommunicate Bonaparte eventually, so he did get back at him, but then Napoleon would imprison him. And in 1814, only was the Pope liberated and Napoleon exiled. 
Elias said, well, he can no longer be a danger to anybody. We would not wish him to become a cause for remorse, when he said so. But Napoleon had already endangered Rome. He had taken the art that was its last vestige of power. And perhaps the popes were naive to invest so much in cultural capital, because as Napoleon proved, real power still lay on the battlefield. Rome eventually got most of that art back, um, but the city was so changed that it did not exert the same cultural influence as before. Rome, as much as any city, experienced enormous change in the late 18th century. It went from political backwater to brilliant cultural capital to war-ravaged city in the short span of some 50 years. It was a cosmopolitan city that, uh, that exited the century so shabbily provincial that it would not exert the same role in the history of art until maybe movie sound sets of Chinichita But looking down at the city from the coffee house of the Quirinal just before 1796, we can imagine that the popes must have felt satisfaction at having helped foster one of the most dramatic art centers of the continent. Thank you. And I will go to the Goethe part now, and I guess the question. Um, considering the fireplace, I'm tempted to say good evening, friends. <laughs> urging you to have faith in what I'm going to say and do as my part of, well, this uh, fireside chat. I'm able to say, however, that I will not be back next week. <laughs> this is a one-time show, I, I suppose. My topic is Goethe in Italy, um, shown uh, iconically, I would say, in Tischbein's uh, portrait, with a tight focus on his observations in and about Venice, Rome, Naples, and Sicily, made in public gardens and squares, on streets, beaches, and in galleries. <coughs> Allow me to point out that even though I am aware that the second half of the chat or salon is usually dedicated to the pleasure of a musical performance, I'm going to read, not sing. But I'm trying to be somewhat entertaining, and that despite the fact that even if Goethe is to German, what Shakespeare is to English literature, the realm of the comical unlike the realm of travel, is hardly where Germans have thrived, and Goethe probably least of all. So cosmopolitanism in the coffee house of the Quirinal Hill in Rome, what has that got to do with Goethe? Well, Goethe was a cosmopolitan, traveled to Rome, and chose the Quirinale as one of the first sites there. He liked and studied the stimulating effects of coffee, and spent hours in a coffee house in the port of Naples, for example, waiting for the boat to take him to Sicily. However, the idea of the coffee house is to be understood in a broader sense, of course, as perhaps another word for the public space. Unlike Immanuel Kant, who never left Königsberg, then the Prussian capital where he was born, Frankfurt born Goethe was a traveler and enjoyed staging himself as one. In the spirit of Kant's enlightening imperative, Sapere Aude, or Dare to Know, which is the motto of this year's Moments of Change program, 
I'm going to introduce to you a selection of passages from Goethe's Italienische Reise, or Italian Journey, which is a significant volume of his autobiography based on the poet's travels to Italy and his diaries written during these travels, which lasted from September 1786 to April 1788. The book, however, was written in a 30-year retrospective. Retrospection might be a, a rather logical perspective in, when it comes to life writing, but is challenging if such life writing implies travel writing about one's immediate adventures, now from a significant distance, both temporal and spatial. It is noteworthy that Goethe writes his travelogue in the present rather than the past tense, as if he were present once again on Italian soil. Ich mache diese wunderbare Reise nicht, um mich selbst zu betrieben, sondern um mich an den Gegenständen kennenzulernen, he writes. My purpose in embarking on this wonderful journey is not to delude myself, but rather to discover myself in the objects that I see. What the impact of this discovery was, he could only fully discern post facto, such as the name of the game. The last quarter of the 18th century makes for a compelling time space of change, for repeated shifts with regard to the Quirinale, as Robin has very clearly shown. The Quirinale is the site of papal residence and also of papal expulsion. These interesting years are precisely those framed by Goethe's actual travel on the one hand and by his composition of the Italian travel book on the other. At Goethe's time, extensive travels to Italy as a site of Greek and Roman antiquity had been well established as a privilege that the aristocratic male youth was granted as part of his education. The concept of the so-called grand tour would be the shortest summary of what I intend including many traveling lords and some few ladies' personal experiences in the city of Rome. In early September 1786, then, Goethe impulsively takes a coach and heads for Italy. Everybody, writes W. H. Arden in his fine introduction to the English translation of Goethe book, everybody knows that the thrones of European literature are occupied by the triumvirate referred to in Finnegan's wake as Dante, Gauti, and shopkeeper, that is to say Dante, Goethe, and Shakespeare. But to most English-speaking readers, thus Arden continues, the second is merely a name. This name then travels and later tells of his travels from Weimar to Sicily. Or perhaps not this name, since Goethe's focus is very much on the secret, clandestine, nightly departure and subsequent incognito existence on the other side of the Alps. The journey south takes him three quarters of a year. For the journey back, the account ends with his return from Sicily to Naples, which is later supplemented by an extensive part about his second sojourn in Rome from June 1787 to April 1788, including the time of the Roman Carnival. Let me point out that Goethe travels to Italy before either Italy or Germany were nation states. That Goethe was a Protestant traveling to Catholic pastures. And that he traveled to Italy as both an artist and a scientist with cosmopolitan inclinations geared toward the world rather than the province. And indeed, compounds that begin with the word Welt or world 
abound in Goethe, ranging from Weltgarten, world garden, to Weltliteratur, world literature. The idea, behind, the idea behind the passages that I'm going to read to you is to do justice to these facets of the writer, and the places where these passages are set clearly reflect Goethe's main travel interests. My stress falls on his journey as marked by acts of courage and a longing for knowledge. Goethe also composed a kind of war text in the genre of yearning for the South, his po poem Mignon, Kennst du das Land, du die Zitronen Grünen? But only to a degree is Goethe such a mignon, since his longing in his Italian travel book is much more precise. He wants to find out who he truly is, and he wants to do so in confrontation with Italy's art, nature, and culture. Looking at a cloud without wishing to know any meteorology, at a landscape without wishing to know any geology, at a plant without wishing to know about its formation equals to Goethe a form of self-imprisonment. Paying attention, seeing clearly, and observing thoroughly is what Goethe excels in on his journey toward more knowledge about his life and that of the world. The Italian journey is a quest in the time-honored sense of that world. As an artist in Italy, he collects casts, takes drawing lessons, and is stimulated to write and rewrite sections of his literary works. As an enthusiastic traveler, he writes about and makes drawings of places, impressions, experiences. And as a scientist, he observes, collects, and analyzes. Clouds and minerals, shells and colors, seeds and leaves. Sigmund Freud, in fact, who strolled, for example, along the Venetian Lido about a century later, points out that Goethe had been much luckier than he, since he not only found shells on the beach, but also a sheep's skull. <laughs> Curious, but let's leave it at that. Um, früh drei Uhr stahl ich mich aus Karlsbad, weil man mich sonst nicht fortgelassen hätte. Thus the Italian journey begins. I slipped out of Karlsbad at three in the morning, otherwise I would not have been allowed to leave. Perhaps my friends, he writes, who had so kindly celebrated my birthday on August 28th, had thereby acquired the right to detain me, but I could wait no longer. I packed a single portmanteau and a valise and jumped into the mail coach. The next morning was misty, calm, and beautiful, and this seemed a good omen. The upper clouds were like streaked wool, the lower heavy. After such a wretched summer, I look forward to enjoying a fine autumn. Having crossed the Alps and reached Lake Gouda, Goethe shares the following. What I enjoy most of all this is the fruit. The figs and pears are delicious, and no wonder since they ripen in a region where lemon trees are growing. Incidentally, he was almost arrested on this occasion in Malchesin is suspected to be an Austrian spy while making a drawing of the fort there. <laughs> Upon his arrival in Venice, Goethe observed, Gute Nacht, so können wir Nordländer zu jeder Stunde sagen, wenn wir in Finstern scheinen, der Italiener sagt, Felicissima Notte. Good night, we Northerners say this at any time after sundown, when we take leave of each other, the Italian says, Felicissima notte, only once to wit, when the lamp is brought into the room at the moment that separates day from night, 
so that the phrase has quite a different meaning. The idioms of everyday language, he writes, are untranslatable for any word from the noblest to the coarsest is related to the unique character, beliefs, and way of life of the people who speak it. Well, on the evening before reaching Rome, he writes, well then, well then, tomorrow Rome. Even now I can hardly believe it. When this wish has been fulfilled, what shall I wish for next? On November the 1st, 1786, then Goethe eagerly enters the city of Rome through the Porta del Popolo. He writes, across the mountains of Tyrol I fled rather than traveled. Vicenza, Padua, and Venice I saw sorrowly. Ferrara, Cento, Bologna, casually, and Florence hardly at all. My desire to reach Rome quickly, meine Begierde nach Rome zu kommen, was growing stronger every minute until nothing could have induced me to make one more stop. On the second day, November the 2nd, of the Feast of All Souls, Goethe visits the Quirinale, or Colonel Hill, in the company of painter Wilhelm Tischbein. And I'll read that section to you. The Pope, he writes, the Pope celebrated the memory of all souls in his private chapel on the Colonel. Admission was free to all. I hurried with Tischbein to the Monte Cavallo, another name for the hill. The square in front of the palazzo, though irregular in shape, is both grand and graceful. There I set eyes on the two colossi. To grasp them is beyond the power of the eye or the mind. We hurried with the crowd across the spacious courtyard and up an enormous flight of stairs and into the vestibules, vestibules opposite the chapel. To think that I was under the same roof as the Vicar of Christ gave me a strange feeling. The office had begun and the Pope and Cardinals were already in the church. The Holy Father, a beautiful and venerable figure, the Cardinals of various ages and statures. I was suddenly seized by the curious wish that the head of the church would open his golden mouth and in speaking of the transports of joy felt by the souls of the blessed, transport us with joy as well. When I saw him merely moving from one side of the altar to the other and muttering, just like an ordinary priest, in German actually it's Pfaffe, which is much worse, <laughs> the original sin of the Protestants stirred in me and I felt no pleasure whatsoever in the sacrifice of the mass traditionally offered here. Did not Christ, even as a child, interpret the scriptures with a loud voice here? As a young man, he certainly did not teach or work miracles in silence, for, as we know from the Gospels, he liked to speak, and he spoke well. <laughs> what would he say, I thought, if he were so, if we, he were to see his representative on earth? droning and tottering about. <laughs> the words venio iterum crucifidi came to mind and I nudged my companion to come outside with me into the free atmosphere of the vaulted and frescoed rooms. There we found a lot of people who were looking at the paintings, for the feast of all souls is also the feast of all artists in Rome. On this day, not only the chapel, but also the rooms in the palazzo are open to the public for many hours. Entrance is free, and one is not even molested by the custodian. I'm skipping some of the things he says in terms of closer readings of a series of not-so-famous paintings, actually. 
and go on with what he has to say after this. And this uh, begins to concern also the portrait. But now for an amusing, amusing anecdote, he writes, to lighten these somewhat ponderous reflections on art. For some time, I had been aware that some German artists, evidently acquaintances of this Tischbein's, would give me a stare, go out and come back for another look. Presently, Tischbein, who had left me alone for a few minutes, returned and said, this is going to be great fun. The rumor that you are in Rome has already spread and aroused curiosity of the artists about the only foreigner whom nobody knows. One of our circle has always boasted of having met you and even lived with you on terms of intimacy, a story we found hard to believe. So we asked him to take a look, a look at you and resolve our doubts. He promptly declared that it was not you, but a stranger without the slightest resemblance to you. So your incognito is safe, at least for the moment, and later we shall, have, we shall have something to laugh about. And he actually refers about this insisting on cloaking him in this white thing that he hardly traveled in, right? It was just for the, for the uh, portrait. This and other episodes in Goethe's first week in Rome lead him to the conclusion, man kann sich nur in Rome auf Rome vorbereiten. Only in Rome can one educate oneself for Rome. About two months into Goethe's first Roman sojourn, Tischbein decides to paint his portrait. Goethe writes, in this artistic colony, one lives, as it were, in a room full of mirrors, where, whether you like it or not, you keep seeing yourself and others over and over again. I have often noticed Tischbein giving me a close scrutiny, and now the reason has come out. He's thinking of painting my portrait. The sketch is finished, and he has already stretched the canvas. The portrait is to be life-size. He wants to paint me as a traveler, wrapped in a white cloak, sitting on a fallen obelisk and looking toward the ruins of the Campania di Roma. It is going to be a fine painting, but it will be too large for our northern houses. I shall again find some corner for myself, but there will be no room for my portrait. It's funny because as far as I know, the portrait is in Frankfurt in the museum that is the house where Goethe was born, but that's not where he returned, so um, <laughs> the dimensions are another issue, I suppose, also of the ego, and it's going to be a fine painting. Yeah? Um, on to Naples. About 10 days into his stay there, Goethe writes, I won't say another word about the beauties of the city and its situation, which have been praised so often. As they say here, vedi Napoli e poi muori, see Naples and die. One can't blame the Neapolitan for never wanting to leave his city, nor its poets for singing the praises of its situation in lofty hyperbole. It would still be wonderful even if a few more Vesuviuses were to rise in the neighborhood. I don't want even to think about Rome. By comparison with Naples's free and open situation, the capital of the world is like an old, wretchedly placed monastery, an altes, übelriechendes Kloster. Um, in Naples, uh, Goethe becomes adventurous. Reluctantly, he writes, but out of loyal comradeship, Tischbein accompanied me today on my ascent to Vesuvius. To a cultured artist like him, who occupies himself only with the most beautiful forms, 
and even humanizes the formless with feeling and taste, such a shapeless heap of Vesuvius, which again and again destroys itself and declares war on any sense of beauty, must appear loathsome. I'm skipping the beginning of the ascent, which was uneventful, but continue where it becomes eventful. The space, he writes, between the cone and the summer gradually narrowed till we were surrounded by fallen stones, which made walking uncomfortable. Tischbein grew more depressed than ever when he saw that the monster, not content with being ugly, was now threatening to become dangerous as well. But there is something about an imminent danger which challenges man's spirit of contradiction to defy it. So that I thought to myself that it might be possible to climb the cone, reach the mouth of the crater and return, all in the interval between two eruptions. We lined our hats with linen and silk handkerchiefs. I grabbed the guide's belt and sticks in hand we set off. The smaller stones were still clattering, the ashes still falling about us. There we stood on the lip of the enormous mouth. A light breeze blew the smoke away from us, but also veiled the interior of the crater. Steam rose all around us from thousands of fissures. Now and then we could glimpse the cracked rock walls. The sight was neither instructive nor pleasant, but this was only because we couldn't see anything, so we delayed in the hope of seeing more. We had forgotten to keep our slow count, and we were standing on the sharp edge of the monstrous abyss when all of a sudden thunder shook the mountain and a terrific charge flew past us. We ducked instinctively, as if that would save us when the shower of stones began. The smaller stones had already finished clattering down when having forgotten that another interval had begun and happy to have, have survived, we reached the foot of the cone under the rain of ashes which thickly coated our heads and shoulders. After an affectionate scolding from Tischbein and some refreshment, I was able to make a careful examination of both the older and the fresher lava. When lava flows sluggishly, the surface cools into solid masses. This process is repeated again and again until finally the whole flow petrifies in jagged shapes. Something similar happens when ice flows on a river, but it looks oral than lava. Naples, even in the evening, is in an uproar too, though one of a somewhat different kind. It makes me wish I could stay here longer. From Naples, he takes uh, the ship to Sicily, and in a subsequent entry titled At Sea, Goethe represents this voyage. The wind had veered to the southwest, and we were forced to learn how dependent the navigator is upon the moods of the weather. We spent an impatient morning between the shore and the coffee house. At noon, we went on, bo at bo we went on board at last. Naples was full of life and color. It was sundown before the boat began to move. Throughout the night, the ship made its quiet progress. The cabins below deck are pleasant and furnished with single berths. Our fellow passengers, opera singers, and dancers with engagements in Palermo are gay and well-behaved. Daybreak finds us between Ischia and Capri, and the sun rose magnificently. Later the sun sinks into the sea, there is no more land to be seen, the horizon is a circle of water, and the night sky is lit up by the moon. But 
But I was not to enjoy this gorgeous sight for too long before I was overcome by seasickness. I retired to my cabin, resumed a horizontal position, took nothing but some bread and red wine, and soon felt very snug. Isolated from the outside world, I let my thoughts run freely in the, on the inner one. Shortly after that, he writes from Sicily, from Palermo, if anything was ever a decisive event for me, it was this voyage. No one who has never seen himself surrounded on all sides by nothing but the sea can have a true conception of the world and of his own relation to it. The simple, noble line of the marine horizon has given me quite new ideas. Goethe calls the public gardens in Palermo the most wonderful spot on earth, emphasizing that to have seen Italy without having seen Sicily is not to have seen Italy at all, for Sicily, he writes, is the clue to everything. Upon leaving uh, Sicily, he's torn between these artistic or poetic and scientific endeavors. And he says, it is truly a misfortune to be haunted by so many spirits. Early this morning, I went alone to the public gardens with the firm intention of meditating further about my poetic dreams. But before I knew it, another spirit seized me, one that had already been haunting me during the last few days. Here, where instead of being grown in pots or under glass as they are with us in the north, plants are allowed to grow freely in the open fresh air and fulfill their natural destiny, they become more intelligent. Seeing such a variety of new and renewed forms, my old fancy suddenly came back to mind. Among this multitude, might I not discover the primal plant or pflanze? There certainly must be one, otherwise how could I recognize that this or that form was a plant if all were not built upon the same basic model? I tried to discover how all these divergent forms differ from one another, and I always found that they were more alike than unlike. But when I applied my botanical nomenclature, I got stuck, which annoyed me a great deal without stimulating me. Gone were my fine poetic resolutions. A garden of the natural world had appeared instead. Why are we moderns so distracted? Why do we let ourselves be challenged by problems which we can neither face nor solve? That's Goethe, not me, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, from Sicily, Goethe returns to Naples, and the boat got itself almost shipwrecked close to Capri and then for nine months to Rome, with many visits to Venice, actually, in that uh, second year. Here I will focus on his uh, observation during the Roman Carnival. About his first Ash Wednesday in Rome, the year prior, 1787, Goethe had written, at last the folly is over. Yesterday, the innumerable little candles created another scene of Bedlam. One has to see the Roman carnival to lose all wish ever to see it again. It is not worth writing about, though it might make an amusing topic for conversation. What I find unpleasant about it is the lack of genuine gaiety in the people. Well, a year later he's back, and not only is he back to see it again, but also writes significantly more about it than about any other topic in the whole book. 
And now reading to you from the second Romans of Germs section, the signal for complete license, masks and fancy dress, and moccoli, which is the Italian word for ends of uh, candles, and also by uh, proverbial connections has a, uh, makes a connection to cursing, as in tirare moccolo, for example. And this is good. Shortly after noon, the bell of the capital tolls, and from that moment on, the most serious-minded Roman, who has so carefully watched his step all year, throws dignity and prudence to the winds. The workmen who have been banging on the paving stones up to the last minute pack up their tools and move off, cracking jokes. Carpets are hung out from one balcony and window after another. The stands are decorated with old embroidered tapestries. Chairs are placed all along the pavements, and the common people and the children pack the street, which has ceased to be a street, and looks more like an enormous decorated gallery. The chairs accentuate the impression of a room, and the friendly sky makes one forget that it has no roof. When one leaves the house, it feels as if one were entering a salon full of acquaintances. The number of people in fancy dress begins to increase. Young men disguised as women of the lower classes in low-necked dresses are usually first to appear. They embrace the men, they take into intimate liberties with the women as being of their own sex, and indulge in any behavior which their mood, wit, or impertinence suggests. One young man stands out in my memory. He played the part of a passionate, quarrelsome woman perfectly. She went along the whole length of the corso, picking quarrels with everyone and insulting them, while her companions pretended to be doing their best to calm her down. Here a pulcinella comes running along with a large horn dangling from colored strings around his thighs. As he talks to women, he manages to intimate with a slight impudent movement the figure of an ancient god of the gardens, and this in holy Rome. But this frivolity excites more amusement than indignation. Since the women take as much pleasure in dressing up as men as the men do in dressing up as women, many of them appear wearing popular costumes of Pulcinella. And I must confess that they often manage to look very charming in this ambiguous disguise. The darkness has scarcely descended into the narrow, high-walled street before lights are seen moving in the windows and on the stands. In next to no time, the fire has circulated far and wide, and the whole street is lit up by burning candles. Si ammazzato chi non porta moccolo. Death to anyone who is not carrying the candle. This is what you say to others, while at the same time you try to blow out their candles. No matter who it belongs to, a friend, a stranger, you try to blow out the nearest candle, or light your own from it first, and then blow it out. <laughs> the louder the cries of Sia Mazzato, the more these words lose their sinister meaning, and you forget that you are in Rome, where at any other time but carnival the wish expressed by these words might be literally fulfilled. Just as in any other language, curses and obscene words are often used as expressions of joy and admiration, so on this evening the true meaning of Sia Amazzato is completely forgotten and it becomes a password, a cry of joy, a refrain added to all jokes and compliments. Someone jeers, Sia Amazzato il signor Abate che fa l'amore. Another greets a good friend with Sia Amazzato il signor Filippo. Another combines flattery and compliment in Sia Amazzata la bella principessa, Sia Amazzata la signora Angelica, Angelica Kaufmann, 
la prima pittrice del secolo, the best painter of the century. All these phrases are shouted loudly and rapidly. All ages and all classes contend furiously with each other. How happy I am, how happy I shall be when Tuesday is over. Goethe writes. <laughs> it is noteworthy, though, that Goethe's observation during the second witnessing of the Roman carnival lead him to an insightful interpretation of, a quite of quite a different order when he writes, and so the exuberant revelry has passed like a dream or a fairy tale. In the course of all these follies, our attention is drawn to the most important stages of human life. A vulgar pulcinella recalls to us the pleasures of love to which we owe our existence. A baobo profanes in a public place the mysteries of birth and motherhood. And the many lighted candles remind us of the ultimate ceremony. If I may continue to speak more seriously than my subject may seem to warrant, let me remark that the most lively and exquisite delights are like horses racing past, the experience of an instant only, which leaves scarcely a trace on our soul. That liberty and equality can be enjoyed only in the intoxication of madness and desire reaches its highest pitch of excitement only in the presence of danger and the voluptuous, half-sweet, half-uneasy sensations which it arouses. In so concluding my Ash Wednesday meditation, I trust that I have not saddened my readers. Such was very far from my intention. On the contrary, knowing that life, taken as a whole, is like the Roman carnival, unpredictable, unsatisfactory, and problematic, I hope that this carefree crowd of maskers will make them remember how valuable is every moment of joy, however fleeting and trivial it may seem to be. That's the end of his comment on uh, the carnival. While the Quirinale has been the hill, square, and palace of popes and kings, tourists and presidents, it also harbors a labyrinth of small streets and one of Rome's most glorious landmarks, which we have already seen in a painting, La Fontana di Trevi, the fountain which depicts Neptune, god of the sea. Ever since Anita Ekberg and Marcello Mastroianni took their infamous dip in Fellini's 1959 La Dolce Vita, the fountain has become an icon. It's on the Quirinal. It is said that if you turn your back to the fountain and toss a coin into it, you will surely return to the eternal city. For all I know, Goethe didn't. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
which is the 18th century of Piranesi's prisons, and especially of Foucault's madhouses. I wonder how either of the speakers see these two sides of the coin fitting together. Well, I, you're exactly right. I mean, Piranesi's exploration of the Capcheri, I mean, it's certainly, yeah, it's, it's a darker side. In his mind, it's connected probably more, I mean, I think, connected more to the idea of the capriccio, which is a, a exploration, you know, sort of the, and the association there is less dark than just by the term that he uses, capriccio capcheri, in fact, what he calls it. Yeah, but there, there is that sort of dark sort of, torture side. There's also, you know, the Goya side of sleep of reason. Um, the, the Foucault, you know, prisons and madhouses um, is certainly a part of that. I mean, the whole, I mean, he argues, and I, I think it's, you know, date-wise we can say the whole systems of enclosure begin the century prior, and, and so, yeah, but that's a certainly part of it, and, and, and one dynamic aspect of it. I don't know if Goethe goes to places like uh, prison, to, to, to the, the, but, but Rome has a huge one. Rome has the uh, San Michele a Ribagrande, which is a huge sort of workhouse there along the, along the river. So it, yeah, I mean, the society has its side of, of, of you know, penal justice that's not at all, uh, not at all sort of the bright sunny image we presented here. And you're right, right to point out. Connection, I mean, Goethe and prisons or madhouses, if we move to the drama, obviously Faust and so on, you have depictions of these, but that wasn't your question. Um, I mean, in what concerns his visits, especially in Rome, but I think on all his travels, he's a real snob. <laughs> um, he, he chooses, you know, the sites of pleasure according to his own, and he says very clearly, what I'd like to do is find out who I am, right, and take the luxury of escape, of leaving my job, of uh, uh, browsing around a beautiful landscape that has been, and he, he, he praises the praisers of uh, the Neapolitan landscape, for example, right, he sings that tradition, but as you also probably gather from the readings from the carnival, he's very much an onlooker. He doesn't engage with, uh, um, say, ethical questions or more cultural questions. We don't know anything about uh, acquaintances, say, with Italians, you know, uh, 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 friendships with Italians, even meeting people outside of the artistic colony. It's very shady in that respect. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, and, I mean other things that happened in that time. It's not driving at is that this charming, this 18th century, which is charming, and is a partial field of And it is one that's predicated on notions of social class. When we look at this different 18th century, which I'm, which I'm alluding, then we can see a population, we can glimpse a population that does not have the luxury of looking back to the past and studying classical stuff. It's people living in a horrible existential world. And it seems to me that this picture which we've heard tonight 
has to be viewed through the lens of social class, otherwise it is incomplete. Yes. And that's why I chose the view from the Quirinal as kind of the, the focus of this. It, it is a view from the top of the city, from the paper right. residence, from, from the lens of, yes, the highest class or it's, it's a very, I mean, it's a very interesting, interesting issue for the, 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 the view from the other side. It always existed, I mean, even in the Renaissance, even in the Rome, Rome, yeah, sort of the acute divide that begins to separate classes in the 18th century. And of course, also the luxury or the privilege of travel, I mean, at that time is absolutely defined by class. I mean, there's no question. I mean, that wouldn't touch on existential conditions necessarily of other classes, if I say that, but that's a clear indication that very few, select few, have had even the chance to, uh, to tour. Are Right, the luxury of staying in the city in spite of cholera because disease is going to be, I mean, the craziness of that dimension. But, but yes, Goethe, to my knowledge, does not talk about visiting, having visited thermal baths. He talks, if anything, about the uh, ancient architecture of those. Did he go to the Grotto and free? Did he go? Uh, did Goethe go to the Grotto? No, he didn't go to the grotto, but they basically, well, they ran a ship into Capri, but he didn't really visit Capri in another dimension. Yeah. On the way back from Palermo to, to uh, Naples. Okay, anything else? All right, well, if not, thank you again so very much.